0: Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing.
1: So let's get started. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Let's talk about grace and relationship to eternal salvation because that's the front end. That's, that's where it begins. We could go all the way back and talk about grace and how God has chosen us and so forth. And all of that is by grace, Ephesians chapter 1. But let's talk about the issues that relate to salvation. Okay? When we talk about grace in relationship to faith, I'm sorry, I, I got one step ahead. We got to define def- grace, right? We got to have a good definition of grace. You've probably heard some popular definitions of grace. Price, what is it? God's riches at Christ's expense. And That's fine. Uh, but grace basically is a free gift. It comes from the same Greek word, that is the word for gift. If I said it in Greek, it would be charis, charismata, or charisma. And Greek, is uh, grace is the word charis. So you see the relationship, you can hear the relationship. So it basically means free gift. When we talk about it in relationship to salvation, grace is God's unmerited favor given to undeserving sinners. Or we could say is unconditional favor given to undeserving sinners. Now, that definition of grace does away with concepts of what some have called costly grace because that is a contradiction in terms. Costly grace? There's no such thing as a costly grace. It's not expensive. It's not cheap. It's free by definition, the word itself. In, uh, th- that is even an emphasis in the Bible. For example, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 24, and I'm just going to refer to a lot of verses rather than go to them or we'll lose our time. Romans 3, 24, Paul talks about being justified freely by his grace. And Paul being redundant there when he says freely by his grace, he really doesn't have to say that because elsewhere he says we're saved by his grace. Why does he say freely by his grace? Simply a matter of emphasis. Like when we say the inerrant word of God, it should be enough to say the word of God, but we say the inerrant, inspired, verbal, plenary inspiration. I mean, you know, we go on and on with all these qualifiers to emphasize the point. Paul seems to be emphasizing the freeness of God's grace. And there are other passages in the Bible, too, like Romans eleven six. It says it can't be of works or else it wouldn't be grace. It would be a debt. So the Bible is very clear that grace is absolutely free. And there are no conditions attached and no merit that we can bring. It is just a free gift. Now, how do we apply that then to some issues in relation to salvation? Four major issues, faith and repentance, the lordship of Jesus Christ, and this area of discipleship especially how does that relate to faith then because there's a lot of definitions of faith out there that are often incorrect if god has done all the work in our salvation then what is left for us to do that leaves us with the definition of faith that means that faith is our response to what god has done so we could say that faith is a response what kind of response is faith well god has done that I see what he's done. I understand what he's done. And I, am, I believe what he has done. That's faith, believe, the same word, noun, verb. I am persuaded that what he has said is true about my need and his provision for my need. I like to use the word persuaded for the word faith. I think it does a fine job. There are others who say that faith is trust. And that's OK with me. We can argue this is where we start splitting the hairs. But what we want to agree with is that faith doesn't include any what, any works or any merit or any other
0: words, any other words, any condition.
1: We'll talk about repentance in a moment because some would disagree with your statement. Any, any kind of conditions or works cannot be a part of faith. So we can't define faith as obedience, right? If you're just accepting something as true and persuaded that it's true or you're trusting in it, you're not, you're, not given a, a, you're not obeying commands because then you would be working and earning or meriting God's grace and favor. It can't be a commitment or a promise because then there's a trade-off there. You're trading a promise to serve God instead of just accepting something as free. So you see how grace affects our definition of faith. Did I put references down on the outline, like Acts chapter 16, 31? You might, you know, Acts chapter 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, shall will be saved. He didn't say believe and be baptized. He didn't say believe and commit or believe and surrender and all these other things. Ephesians two eight nine. of course, for by grace are you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, how does grace then relate to repentance? Because when we talk about faith, many people want to talk about repentance and we talk about salvation you'll often hear the word repentance as well also the, the word repentance in the bible in the new testament and, and the old testament is used for believers and unbelievers in fact what i've discovered in my study of the word it's a pretty broad word and and we have to be careful in in making it a very narrow definition because it can be used in a number of different ways the Greek word for repentance, and I don't want to scare you with Greek when I just said you don't need to understand any, but it's very simple. It's made of two different words, metanoia. Uh, meta means after in the Greek language, and you probably have some, or alongside of, or, or with, um, you have some parallels in the English language, like metaphysical, you know, um, metamorphosis, to change. And so, meta can mean to change or an after, and uh, Noia is from the uh, word for mind, noose, or noeo, to think. So it means afterthought or to think later. In other words, to change your mind. That's, that's the, if you took the two words on their own, that's what repentance would mean, to change your mind. Now, here's, here's something that's interesting, though. The word... Noose or mind in the New Testament is often interchanged with just the whole inner being. So it's not just the mental capacity, but it really has to do with the whole inner person. I like to just call it a change of heart, a new inner orientation. So the, my understanding of repentance is that it's a new inner orientation. Now, this differs with the view of repentance, that repentance is a change in our conduct or a change in our behavior. And I separate the root, the change of heart, from the fruit, the change in behavior. And the reason I separate that is because I think the Bible does, of course. Jesus said, for example, he said to the Pharisees who wanted to know what, he, what they should do, he says, now bear fruits worthy of repentance. You see, he separated the root from the fruit. So I see that distinction there. Now, uh, what we need to do then is to formulate an idea of repentance in, in relationship to salvation that doesn't contradict what we've just said. About that salvation is absolutely free and that grace is just accepting that free gift. So where does repentance fit in? Well, there are two basic views that I think harmonize with free grace theolo- in free grace theology. Two safe views. And one is the view that repentance means a change of heart or a change of mind. And when we talk about faith in Jesus Christ, then that's just an expression of somebody's mind changing. In other words, I have now come to see that I'm a sinner and I have come to see that I need a savior see my mind and my heart has changed whereas before i perhaps didn't care about christ or rejected him now i've come to see my need for him there's no still no work involved no merit involved we're not saying that repentance is that i have to stop doing every sin okay so, because we're not defining it that way so that's a safe definition that repentance is a change of heart and that's been a, a long time popular view and it and it harmonizes with free grace theology the uh, the second view the second view That harmonizes is a view that's been popularized recently. uh, And it's a view that repentance means harmony with God. And uh, this is true of believers and unbelievers, and I agree with that. And it's saying it's taking it more as a pre evangelistic uh, preparation of the heart. And so someone who repents is getting right in their thinking and actions towards God, and they're more receptive to the truth of the gospel. And um, that view also harmonizes with free grace theology. Although I prefer the first first view myself, Zane Hodges and uh, Bob Wilkins would support the second view, and we have that friendly disagreement, right? But 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 the point is is it, let's not split the hairs. We're still agreeing on the elephant, on the big picture, okay? And neither of those views cause any problems in free grace theology, in my opinion. That's how repentance could fit in. Now, how about this whole issue of lordship, because? Uh, You have many verses that say, for example, something like, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've heard people talk at the conference about lordship salvation. And I did my uh, doctoral dissertation on lordship salvation and I've printed it up for people. Well, Jesus is Lord and he wants to be Lord of our lives, right? So where does that fit into salvation? Do we have to make him Lord of our lives and surrender to him and commit ourselves to him? in order to be saved. That's the big controversy that's going on called Lordship Salvation.
0: All right. What, what do we need to do
1: there? Well, the Bible does talk about the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and the truth is Jesus is Lord. We know that, or well, we wouldn't be Christians, really. Jesus had to be Lord in order to save us, right? Because only an eternal God could make an eternal sacrifice to save sinners as bad as we are, thousands of years after the fact of it happening. So Jesus had to be Lord. He had to be God in order to save us. Now, the question is, what do we have, how do we respond to that lordship? Do we have to understand all the implications of that and surrender our lives to that and make him the master of our lives and promise to serve him in order to receive the free gift of eternal life? Well, wouldn't that be contradictory to a grace system? if we said, again, that we had to do something in order to receive a free gift. So how do we understand the lordship of Christ in a passage like, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? Because there are those who will say, well, see, it says right there, you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to submit to him as Lord and surrender Him to him as Lord. You have to confess him as Lord with your mouth. Well, I think it's very simple. I think those passages speak of his lordship as a title, As deity, and in the objective sense, the question is what do we have to do on the subjective level? Do we have to, what is our subjective response to that? To ask, it is incongruous with uh, the notion of sin and the free gift that somebody who is a sinner make a mature decision commit themselves to God. I mean, these are the kind of decisions I'm making today, and I've been a Christian for 20-some years. Okay, But these are the decisions I'm making today, and we want to ask somebody who doesn't have the Spirit of God at all to surrender themselves to Christ and make him master their life. They don't know what that means. They don't know what that means. So when it comes to the lordship of Christ, he has to be Lord to save us. But our response is to him as our Savior by definition, we're saved by Jesus, our Savior, who is the Lord, if that makes sense to you. And what, what happens when we confuse the lordship of Christ in, 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 into making him the master of our lives and put that into salvation? What we've done is we've confused two very important ideas that we call in theology justification and sanctification. And justification, my understanding of the Bible, is that When we believe on Jesus Christ, God justifies us. That means that we are declared not guilty. Romans has a lot to say about that. You're justified through faith, chapters 3, 4, 5 of Romans. Justification happens in an instant. Sanctification, on the other hand, is how God makes us righteous. Justification is instant. Sanctification is a lifelong process. Justification is a legal declaration of our righteousness. Sanctification is a lifetime process of living out that righteousness and becoming more Christ-like. Now, when we ask people to make decisions about surrendering and submitting and committing themselves, are those justification decisions or s- sanctification decisions? Sanctification, obviously. They come after the cross. They come as a response. Well, he's a wonderful Savior. Now, what, how should I serve him? How can I live my life for him? He says that I'm righteous before God. How can I live up to that? How can I begin to mold my and shape my life? And part of that is, of course, well, maybe the beginning step is making Christ the Lord of your life. There's one more important element I'll cover under uh, faith, our grace and salvation, and that's the issue of security. If we are saved by grace as a free gift of God, this should answer our questions about the security and secureness of our salvation. If we're saved by grace, and God has done all the work, and all I can do is receive it, then the question is, can I lose it? In other words, if I'm saved by grace, what keeps me saved? Would it it not be a disconnect to say, well, I'm saved by grace, but I'm kept saved by my own efforts? I'm saved by God's efforts, but I'm kept saved by my, my own efforts. Well, if that were true, if I were kept saved by my own efforts, then I would have to get resaved by my own efforts, it would seem. So when we teach a free grace theology consistently, and we begin with the God of grace who gives the free gift of grace that all we can do is accept freely, then it would follow that our, our, sec- our salvation is secure. And we could turn to John chapter 10 for that, but Romans chapter 8 is probably my favorite, the last part, verse 29 through through 39. He talks about all those that God has called, he's justified, those are justified, he's glorified. And by the way, he's justified and he's glorified, but doesn't say he was sanctified. Why is that? Cuz that's up to us. God justifies us and he glorifies us, that's guaranteed. But our sanctification's up to us. Depends on our obedience and cooperation with him. So, security falls into this system very well. Now, there are people who would call themselves free grace who don't believe in eternal security. I just think it's being inconsistent. But I think that uh, consistent view takes you there very easily. Grace in the Christian life. Now, if grace save, it saves us through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that salvation is secure. How, then, does that carry into the Christian life? And this is where, frankly, a lot of Christians drop the ball. How is justification related to sanctification? And this answers questions like, well, I just get saved and not do anything. What is God's plan? What is God's purpose for us? Well, I think we have to begin the Christian life with a firm understanding of and a firm assurance of our salvation. So that's the first issue we talk about. Now, this is very important because if you, if you don't have your grace theology and salvation intact, I'm telling you, you can't, it's impossible to have assurance. Right, you might think you have assurance, but I could convince you you don't. Okay. Cause if grace is not a free gift, if it in any way depends on you, then you got problems with assurance. You might feel good one day, but I guarantee you a day's coming when you're going to think you don't measure up. There's always going to be somebody outperforming you. So whenever you throw salvation into the performance uh, arena, you're going to have problems. Only by accepting grace as a free gift can you have full assurance of your salvation because if it doesn't depend on you, it depends on God and his promise towards you. The basis of our assurance is the promise of God's word that if we believe, we will have eternal life. Not our feelings, Not our performance, not our productivity, not even the amount of our works. Now, there are things that I think have a confirmatory value in our assurance. We have uh, some people call the witness of the spirit in us that says that we are children of God. But that's almost a subjective thing because you might not feel that sometimes. There's the amount of works that we do. You can look at a person's works or you can look at your own works and say, you know, God, really, I must really be a child of God because my life has changed. Look at the things I'm doing for him. But those aren't reliable. There are people who are doing a lot more works than you and I are, but they belong to a cult that doesn't even accept Jesus as God. So works are unreliable and subjective feelings are unreliable. The only reliable basis of our salvation is the assurance we get from God's promise in his word. And if you receive this gift, you have eternal life. And on that basis and on that basis alone, uh, we can have total and thorough assurance, although the other things can confirm that to us. And you have passages like John 5, 24, which make it very simple. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You have passed from death to life. Not will pass, but you have passed. Has passed is what it actually says. First John 5, 11 through 13, of course, these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. So the Christian life really has to begin with assurance. I don't think a person can really get up and grow until they do. It's like in it's like, it's like, my sons in the room. so I'll just use him as an example. It's like I said, son, you know, you, uh, you, you've been a good boy. You're my son. And uh, I want you to remember that. You'll always be my son. Or I could tell him, you know something? You didn't get a perfect grade on your last test. I don't know if you're my son. Of course, that's not true of him. Now, which would be the healthier environment for him to grow? There's only one choice there. There's only one environment that makes any sense. So, would God say to us, would God say to us, well, I don't know if you're my children. You're going to have to prove it. Does that motivate you? Or how about I love you and I've accepted you and you're my child?
0: I just want you to know that.
1: For God's God's um, position towards us is one of assurance, and I challenge you to look at the epistles in the New Testament. Notice that is he questioning the salvation of his readers, or is he assuring them and reminding them of who they are? How about Ephesians? He spends three chapters talking about the riches that they have in heaven and who they are and that they're forgiven, they have their citizenship in heaven, and so forth and then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, now I want you to walk worthy of the calling by which you are called. Live up to it, in other words. Same thing we have in, uh, in Galatians and in Romans, Romans chapter 12. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, all that he's done for you in chapters 1 through 11, now offer your by his living sacrifice. You see, he's not questioning your salvation, he's reminding him of it. His position towards us is assurance. So grace provides the only basis for assurance. You get into any kind of work system and you just don't know because you'll never be perfect enough. That's the whole argument of Galatians. The Galatians were trying to go back into the law and he says, unless you keep every bit of it, it's not going to do you any good. You'll be under the curse again. And I tell you, this is an epidemic problem that I run into when I go around visiting churches and so forth. It's an epidemic problem that there are people in good churches who don't know whether they're saved because somehow they've mixed in works into that formula, and and that's always the result. Now, grace has a lot to do with our motivation as well, our motivation for Christian living. Now then, do I approach the Christian life as something, well, I've got to live up to this, or I'm just not going to be a Christian. Or I've got to prove that I'm a Christian by my good works, or I'll go to hell. Or would there be another motivation? for the Christian life. Under grace, let me ask you, what would what do you think would be the motivation when you understand that God has saved you by grace? He's done all the work. All I had to do was hold out my hand
0: and accept it. Believe what he's done. Now, how should I be motivated in the Christian life?
1: Gratitude is a good word. I'm just grateful, and so I want to do something for God who's done so much for me. What's another motivation?
0: Joy, okay? Just finding joy in the Christian life. Rewards. And we're going to talk about how that fits in in a little while.
1: Fear of discipline, we're going to talk about how that fits in too. Because if God has given me this wonderful thing and I'm a bad steward of it, there are consequences. But we're not going to dangle people over hell and question their salvation, but we want people to know that they're going to be accountable and responsible for what God has done for them. So when we talk about motivation, there are good motivations. Love, gratitude, joy, duty, eternal significance. God has made me his child. I'm part of his eternal program. I can live for something bigger than Charlie Bing. You see, I'm significant now.
0: And uh, rewards is a,
1: is a motivation. When we talk about motivation, we then distinguish from a life that is driven by legalism. Instead, we talk about a life that is liberated. And there's these extremes in, in the approach to the Christian life. There would be maybe what we call license. This would be the view that, well, God saved me by grace. I can do whatever I want to. I can do whatever I want to. I got my ticket. Then there's the other extreme, which is legalism. It says, I, in order to keep my ticket, I've got to do certain works. I've got to work hard. I've got to serve God. I've got to be at church three times on Sunday and so forth. Or three times a week. And then there's what I think is a biblical view, liberty. Not license, not, liberty, not legalism, but liberty. And liberty says, I've saved you and I've freed you to serve me. And so Paul says, don't use your freedom for selfish things and sinful desires. To fulfill your own sinful desires, use it to love one another. Use it to serve God. So it's a responsible use of our freedom, not legalism, not license, but liberty. Okay, that comes from gratitude for the blessings that God has given us. It's gratitude, not guilt. Uh, sometimes I just I tell people that you know, simply put, the Christian life is saying thank you to God. That's how we say thank you to God. We live the kind of life He wants us to. The Christian life is just a big thank you note to God. And I've already talked a little bit about that. What about rewards? not the fear of hell. We've heard talk about rewards in our big sessions out there. And under grace, this is why rewards is very important in in grace theology. And you know, I find many people have not really heard rewards spoken of in their churches or put together in their churches. In fact, many of the passages that speak of rewards are wrongly interpreted to mean heaven or hell type of things instead of some kind of eternal reward. Uh, But this is where rewards fit in, because if if a Christian who is saved totally by grace does live in license, well, there needs to be a consequence of that. One of the consequences is that they could lose their reward. And on the other hand, if somebody sacrifices in their life and suffers for Jesus Christ more than another, it seems that in God's economy it would be fair that that person would be rewarded than another. But it's, it's a very simplistic approach to the scriptures to take those reward passages and always make them threatening hell. Like 1 Corinthians 9.27 that Bob mentioned a little while ago about um, Paul feared being uh, disqualified. He wasn't afraid of hell. He, being dis- he's talking about, he's using the analogy of a race and just losing the prize or the, you know, the rewards that he could otherwise have. I think that's the key to understanding the book of Hebrews, where Where Paul, um, where the author holds out—I don't know who it was—Barnabas, I think so, or Apollos—but where the author holds out the possibility of eternal significance in God's kingdom. And so, what is the threat there of those five warning passages? Is he really threatening them with hell, or is he threatening them with the loss of something else? That's a whole other area we could get into. Matthew sixteen twenty-seven and. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10. And this whole discussion of the judgment seat of Christ and the Bema seat of Christ is very important in free grace th- theology because that's where we give an account. We can't run wild, and God won't let his children run wild. But there are consequences that motivate us to godly living, and part of that is rewards and our accounting at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Our salvation is settled and secure, and that's motivating to live the kind of life we should live. But another motivation after that is, well, I'm still gonna have to give an account for how I use my life and how I treated people and how I use my time on this earth. So grace in the Christian life begins with the issue of assurance and goes on into the uh, motivation of why we live the Christian life. And I find this very liberating for Christians too when they understand this, this aspect of the, this outworking of free grace theology is that it's no longer serving God because I have to or to prove I'm a good person. But it's just because he loves me, and, and um, I'd like to thank him for it. And so there's not this pressure to prove anything by my
0: performance. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.